following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, friends, good morning. If you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21. And as you get your Bibles out, I'll give you a quick prayer request for Justin. Um, he texted me this morning saying that he was feeling under the weather. As you may know, some of his kids have been sick and it seemed to have got him. So uh, just pray for him and their family that everyone might be healed. And then for all of the sick in our church, I know that sickness is going around. You've seen the email probably that came out recently saying, if you're sick, stay home. And um, I'm assuming that's part of the reason why we're a little light this morning, but that's okay. Well, friends, it's a blessing to be here with you this morning and to open up God's word with you. And so as we do so, I invite you to hear the words of our living God. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 21, all of chapter 3 this morning. Friends, hear the Lord speak. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have, been, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been made known now, or as it has now been made revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him or in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generation, or throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the book of Ephesians, Paul starts off from chapter 1 through verses 3.13, really laying out the basics of Christian life. Basics of what it means to be in Christ, what we have access to, what that looks like. And then we come to verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3, and throughout the rest of this letter, Paul lays out for the church what living in accordance to those promises looks like. He's laid out what are those basics, and then he says, now go forth and do. This is a common trait of Pauline writing. He does a lot of this where he lays out theology, and then he kind of gives the practical implication or the way it goes out into the life of the believer. We see as Paul dives into this deep prayer, this section that we are going to look at in verses 14 through 21, his prayer for the believers in Ephesus. In light of what he's already talked about in verses from chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 13, now what are they to do? What is the prayer that he has for them? Paul here shows us that it's not only possible in and through God, but it's mandatory that they have these things. He looks to God and he says, God, only you can grant these things, but they need it. They need to understand the love of God that he has for them so that they can then experience that and take it out into the world, share it with one another, and respond accordingly back to God. It's only possible through him, though. What an example for us. How often do we pray prayers that are in some ways superficial, kind of surface level, right? We don't really pray these deep, heartfelt prayers like Paul teaches right here as he shows. He says, I want you to experience the power of the Spirit. I want you to experience Christ dwelling within you. I want you to experience what it is that is this love of Christ, this love that is mastered your whole soul. And then he says that you would experience the fullness of God. We're going to look at all of those things in a little more depth, but just think about the breadth of what he's talking about here. He's not talking about, Lord, I just I hope that they know you. Not that that's a bad prayer at all. I hope that everyone hears the truth of the gospel and comes to know the saving work of Christ, that they know God. But he goes deeper than that. He says, I don't want them to just know you. I want them to be empowered by you. I want them to feel you in them. I want them to know the love that you have had for them. I want them to be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the prayer that Paul lays out. And it gives us a perfect example of things we should be praying for as a church body. Notice he prays in kind of a twofold manner. As he prays, he calls upon God to motivate the church. You'll see that. But then, not only does he call upon God to motivate, but he calls upon God to open the eyes 
so that the people can actually see and respond accordingly. This twofold part of our prayer, we sometimes do this in prayer. We look to God and we say, God, without you, which is true, without you, we can't do any of this. But then there's no call on the God to empower this heart to go forth and do. We say, God, if you'll just do this, it would be a lot better. And then we don't follow it up by saying, God, help us to respond in accordance to what you're already doing. God has empowered every believer to do the things that are in accordance with his word and his will because of the spirit working in the life of the believer. And yet we never go forth and say, then help us do it. Make us do it. Empower us so that we can step forward in your light and in your truth. Paul calls upon them not only to hear God, but to then see his sovereign provision and respond accordingly. This prayer is also an exhortation for the people. It's as if, as he's praying, and I know this is written letter, right? But it's as if he's praying to God and he's saying, I'm hoping that they hear this and they listen and respond and write accordance with what has been said. And so in light of that, friends, I invite you to dive into this text with me, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What is the reason that he is starting off with? He says, for this reason, for what reason? Paul is speaking about what he's talked about in these earlier chapters. A few things that come to light right off the bat is chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For the reason that we are alive together with Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 10, we are his workmanship. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Chapter 2 and verse 19, he says, we are no longer aliens. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20 of chapter 2, he says, We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We are built on Christ. And together, he says in verse 21, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Because we have become members of this body in Christ, we've put on a new identity. The old has passed away. We put on the new. Paul prays then for the Ephesian church and he says, here's the prayer I have for you. For this reason, because of all the things that God has done by saving you, by calling you out of darkness and into his light, these are the things that I desire for you to hear and to experience and to know. A deep knowledge, not just a superficial knowledge, but this deep understanding that penetrates to the depths of your heart. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Some have argued that this is a, a prescription for how we are to pray. However, I don't believe that Paul is prescribing a necessary posture of prayer, but something else. He's trying to give us a mindset of where he's at. We see differing postures of prayer throughout the scriptures. In Genesis 18, Abraham was standing before the Lord. 
First Chronicles 17, 16, David went in and sat before the Lord. So why does he say he's bowing the knees? Is this just a, another means? Well, there's something that it means for us. It, it signifies something. Bowing the knees is a sign of a couple of things. One, an attitude of submission. Psalm 95, 1-6 gives a, a good imagery, but verse 6 lays it down. He says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Submitting under the Lord as God, as King, as Ruler. Bowing the knee also signifies an intense passion or emotion. Ezra chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Talk about an extreme passion, an extreme emotion of sorrow. He says, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face before you. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has been mounted up. So we see these postures before the Lord can be different. But what is Paul saying that he says, I bow my knees before the Father. I bow my knees well, I think he could be speaking about a couple of things. I think specifically he's speaking about bowing under the sovereignty of God. As we talked about in the beginning, Paul's opening prayer is something that God alone can provide. It's through God's provision that he can grant the ability for the people to respond accordingly. This doesn't leave it that the people shouldn't, but he says, God, you alone open eyes. You alone open hearts. You alone grant the ability for people to hear and to heed. And so he's looking to God's sovereignty and he says, I bow my knees before you. I drop down in utter submission under you. But notice how he dresses them. This is, this is perfect, right? For this reason, I bow my knees. He doesn't say... And not that these are bad terms, right? He doesn't say Lord. He doesn't say God. He doesn't say Jehovah or Yahweh. He says before the Father. He bows his knees before the Father. This same address that Christ uses when he teaches the apostles to pray in Matthew 6, 9, right? He says, our Father, Abba, teaches us so much about who our God is. If we are believers in him. We don't approach him with this fear that he will not care. We don't approach him with this fear that he'll just push us away or rebuff us. Ignore us. Rather we come before a father. A God. A one who is tender. Who is loving. Who is compassionate. We come before a father who will hear us. Who will listen to us. That will answer according to his will. We come before a father who takes no pleasure in just pushing us off and saying, leave me alone. But rather, a father who hears and responds. We approach a father then, as Paul does, with boldness and confidence, knowing that he will hear and he will answer according to his will. 
especially for a prayer like this, right? Something that is so necessary for the believer, something that's so deep into the spiritual depths of our hearts. Notice he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every, na- every family in heaven and on earth is named. First, I want to get it out of the way. We are not talking about universalism. There's this belief that because it says right here that God, the Father, he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, it means that he is the Father of all and therefore he saves all. And then you have nothing to worry about because eventually we'll all end up in heaven. It's false. It's one means to salvation and it is through Christ. Don't let anyone ever say anything otherwise. To, go, to say something else is to go against truth. To go against what God has spoken in truth. God is not the father of everything. He is the God of the universe. He is the God over everything. He is sovereign in all ways. But he is not the father of everything. Not everyone has the ability to approach him as fellow heirs with Christ. To be called brothers and sisters in the family of God. Not everyone has that freedom to call him father. We see Christ make that separation in a couple of places. If you'll turn back with me to John in chapter 8. John chapter 8 verses 39 through 44. The title of this, and if you have an ESV, or I'm sure probably even in the NASV, it says, "You You are of your father the devil. John chapter 8 and verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did, they said to him. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father... You would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. And listen right here, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Christ makes it clear there's not everyone is of the Father, the God in heaven. Some are of this Father, the devil. They have submitted under him. We see this again in 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to just turn there, you don't have to. Verse, uh, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So it's clear that universalism is not true. So what is then meant when he says, From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named? What does that mean? He's talking about every saint of every age, both in heaven and on earth, This is everyone who has believed in God by faith in these promises of his. This speaks to our forefathers. We just read about Abraham. This speaks to our forefather Abraham. 
speaks to David, speaks to every one of us that is sitting here who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, speaks to those in the church of Ephesus that Paul was writing to. This is the father that Paul is approaching. It's this father who has called men and women and children out of darkness throughout history and into light, into faith in him. And he says, this father that he has bowed his knee before, that he has approached this God who has named every family in heaven and on earth, he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That according to the riches of his glory. I hope that sets you back a little in your seat. Think about it, the riches of God's glory. Try and measure them. Try and add some value to the riches of God's glory. They're limitless, right? They have no end. There's no way to measure them. There's nothing that we can stretch out so far as to say, this is what God's glory is. And that's exactly what Paul says, I desire that they know. He says that according to the riches of his glory, because they are indeed rich, they are deep with richness. This phrase of his glory calls us to see his riches, not just as some powerful king, not just as one who is a ruler, which he is, not just as a king, which he is, not as just as God, but it's the very nature, it's the very core of who he is. They belong innately to God. His riches are part of just his nature. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 17, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, this glory of his riches, it's just innate to who he is because he is glorious. He is glory. And it says that he may grant you. So according to these unmeasurable, elaborate, beyond any comprehension riches, Paul asks that God may grant the Ephesians a gifting. And he says to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. To be strengthened with power through his spirit. Paul is not simply asking that they know the spirit or that they experience the spirit, but rather they be strengthened with power by the spirit. Spiritual power is not something that is only for the spiritual elite or for the local charismatic church. It says spiritual power is the life is certain to the Christian. This isn't for some special Christian or some certain Christian. This is for the Christian. It's a rather a gift for all believers. It says be strengthened with power. Paul wanted them to know that through God's gift of the Spirit comes with it power. They have the ability to do all that they must in the Christian life. He's already laid out the basics and he says, now respond accordingly because you have the power. You are strengthened by the Spirit in your hearts, in your inner being. And this is not a one and done. This wasn't something like, be strengthened and you're good for life. It's be strengthened, ongoing, continue to grow in strength 
over time, building up stronger and stronger and stronger. And he says in your inner being, in this inner man, it's been the light of what we've been speaking about over the last several weeks, right? It's this inner heart, guarding the heart, in Revelation saying you lost the love you once had. It's about protecting this inner man, the inner being, the place that God sees, the place that God penetrates, the place that God can heal, the place that God can change and transform and bring into right relationship through salvation, the place where God can place his spirit to be cleansing the rest of that darkness out, to be removing all the filth. God's work begins at salvation and it continues to dig deeper and deeper and deeper as it pulls out the weeds and it pulls out all of the trash so that the fruits may grow in abundance. And Paul continues, he says, strengthened by the power in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love So that Christ may dwell. So he's already prayed one section. He says, I pray for you to have this power. And now he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul is not specifically only calling upon salvation. Because Christ does dwell in our hearts in salvation. But he's talking about something deeper. The Greek word here, katakeo, has a compound. It means kata, meaning down and Oikeo means to inhabit. This means that it's going into the depths of the heart. Points not just to being inside, but being settled in, living in, being comfortable in. We see more and more of Christ being settled into our hearts as we grow in sanctification. Paul is pointing not to the believer's salvation alone, because Christ does enter there, but this growth as the weeds are removed. In a sense, Paul says, Christ dwells in you, but he's not at his full comfort yet. The comfort level is not quite there. It's as if you, and I know many of you have, you've moved into a new house or you moved into a new apartment. And until you kind of get it situated, it's not yours really. You start to clear out things. Maybe you paint over some holes in the wall. Maybe you fix a few things that were broken. You organize your closet. You put the right pictures up. And you say, this is, this is mine. This, is, this has been cleansed and this is my home now. And this is what Christ does in the heart of the believer. He enters into the home and then he begins to cleanse it. He removes the filth. You know as you've grown, Lord willing, in sanctification over the years from your early days of salvation until now... You see the growth. Your language changes. Your thoughts change. Maybe the music you listen to. Movies you watch. How you speak to one another. Your prayer life. Your reading. Your worship. As you, as you sing to God, it changes. Because what you used to sing, you sing with a whole new light. Because you've experienced the depths in new ways. That's what's happening Christ dwelling in the heart and going deeper and deeper and removing more and more and removing all this garbage, putting the fresh paint on and saying, here, I am comfortable. I am removing all of the filth. I am removing all of the old and 
I'm helping them to grow in me, helping them to know me more deeply. And he continues, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Notice it's only through faith. It must be a believer. Christ doesn't dwell in the unbeliever's heart. And Christ also can't grow if our faith is little. Our faith must grow. And he says that you being rooted and grounded in love. Being made strong in the inner man. Having Christ dwelling in your hearts. Then you might experience this rooting and grounding in love. When Christ is at home in our hearts. We experience his reign over our lives, especially in the inner man, that that place that we must guard so carefully because without protecting the heart, all the filth and all the mire and all the attacks come. We must protect this heart. He says that place, that inner man, you can then become rooted and grounded in love. There's a strong foundation of love. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart at our salvation. Christ begins this work of showing us his love in such a beautiful way and it just grows in depth as we realize all the more our sinfulness, as we realize all the more of what he did for us on the cross. John fifteen thirteen. greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We get to experience that love and we get to be rooted and grounded in that love and that becomes the foundation for everything that we do. Remember how Christ lays out the commandments. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is the basis of answering all of the law? What is the basis of our Christian life? He says, love. What is the call that we saw when he reaches out to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation? He says, you've lost the love you've had at first. Love is this foundation. And when we love Rightly, when we have experienced the love of Christ and when we respond and love rightly, everything else follows accordingly. And he says here that once you have been rooted and grounded in this love, you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We cannot comprehend love unless we know love. It's like a language in a way. It's, I can't understand a language unless I've heard the language and I begin to immerse myself in this language and I begin to see the language and know it. We can also not comprehend the fullness of love until we've been immersed in the love of God. Unless our foundation is found in Christ. When that foundation is found, then we can comprehend love. And we can share love. And we can respond in love. Paul's prayer is that the believer may have the strength to comprehend. I think that's an interesting way to put it. It's like he's saying, there's such a feat that you have to have strength to comprehend it. 
There's so much there. This, this love is so overwhelming. This power is so magnificent that you need to have strength to even try and wrestle your brain to grasp at it. Knowing the love of Christ is commanded of all and is supposed to be experienced by every believer. That's why he says, of all the saints. And then he says, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? I hope everyone got the memo this morning. There was an email that was sent out saying, bring your measuring tape, right? So we can measure out what is the height and depth and length and we can know. It's not what Paul is saying, is it? He desires that every believer know love and understand it to his fullness. There's no measuring tape. There's no magical number. I can't add enough numbers to say this is how much God loves us. This is how much Christ loves us. But rather he's saying the love of the Father is vast, complete and beyond all measure. And he lays out these kind of four ways to measure it. He says the breadth. We see that reflected back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 18, as God says he accepts the Gentiles and the Jews. In length, God choosing us before the foundation of the world, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In height, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And in depth, God reaching down into the depths of our depravity, redeeming those who had trespassed against him, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. God accepts both Jew and Gentile. There's the breadth. God has chosen us from before the foundation of the world. There's a length. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's a height that is beyond all measure. Depth. God coming into the depths of your depravity and plucking you out of it. Think about how deep and how depraved you were. God's love can reach any person at any time battling any sin and bring them from darkness to light. From condemnation to commendation. From unrighteousness to righteousness. His love is that powerful no, we can't measure it. No, we can't comprehend it to its fullness. No, we'll never be able to put a grasp on it and say, there it is. But we can know that it goes so deep as to call each and every sinner that has come to know Christ out of the depths of their darkness, out of their despair, out of all the evil that they've done and said, repent. Turn, look upon this cross where I purchased you. Look upon this cross where Christ's blood was poured out that you might be washed clean. That you might receive your righteous robes so that as you stand before me, I see him, not you. He says to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul literally is saying here, he says... You may have the strength to comprehend all these things, right? The breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. It's something that we can't comprehend well. 
Why? Because Christ is beyond our human abilities. Beyond our human knowledge. Paul is not speaking here of knowing that we need to love Christ. He's not speaking of knowing that we should love Christ. Or knowing just that love is the proper response. But he's saying, I want you to know the very experience that is only in him and through him. The love that grants us the ability to love him in response and to love others rightly. We are commanded to love in response to the love that has been given to us. We love because he first loved us. The love of Christ surpasses the understanding of man. And that's why it's so both appealing and appalling to the world. The world looks upon it and says, something's different about that. But then they realize what it means and they say, that's too much. It's too, it's too much. I can't take it. Because it means that they have to change. It means that they have to respond differently. It means that the superficial love that they've experienced for their whole life is not truth anymore. There's something that's deeper. There's something that's more. Something they don't understand. Worldly love ends when it's offended or hurt. But the love of Christ, it lasts forever. Worldly love is selfish. It's looking for what it can get in return. But Christ's love is free and it bounds. And it, it's all about what it can give. It's not about what it gets in return. It's about what it can give. It says, you love because you first loved, because I first loved you. I didn't look to you and say, love me. And then maybe I'll do something for you. It says, I love you. How are you going to respond? What are you going to do in response And all of this comes to this point of saying that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Having experienced all these things, knowing this comprehension of Christ's love, it says that you may be then filled with all the fullness of God. To be filled with the fullness of God is truly incomprehensible. It's possible, but it's incomprehensible. It means to be totally under the sovereignty of God, having submitted completely under his rule, nothing left of the old self or the old man. That inner man has been cleansed. Christ is dwelling. And now, it's God that's fullness is within you. It must be emptied of self. Think about it. If all the fullness of God is truly incomprehensible, we can't even... Put a grasp on what that must look like. How can you hold on to any little piece of yourself and take on the fullness? All, I'm sure all of you guys have seen the in your old science classes when you were in school, things like that, or those of you that are still in school, you'd have something like oil and water, right? And you'd put it in there and you start pouring the water and they don't they don't connect. And eventually they'll separate and as you keep pouring it will overflow. And there's no way for them to mix. And that's the same here. It's saying you need to clear out. You need to get rid of everything. You need to put to death the old man, that old self. So that the fullness might come in. This pure water might come in. That God's fullness can fill you. And he comes here to this beautiful doxology as we close out for 
verses 20 and 21, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul closes out here this doxology declaring the limitlessness of God's power and the care for his people. Notice Paul recalls who God is and how he indeed will answer Paul's prayer for the believers. He says, our God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Paul has just asked for some pretty incredible things. Things that are beyond comprehension, as he says. He says, I want them to be filled with the power of the Spirit. I want them to have Christ dwelling in the depths of their hearts. I want them to know this love to the fullness. I want them to be filled with God in their, to His fullness in their hearts. And he says, this is all possible because we have a God who does more than we can ever ask or think. Who is far more abundant in His giving. According to the power within us, the God who is able to give us the power of the Holy Spirit that we might be able to serve Him fully and experience Him. This is what Paul has prayed for. He says, according to what's already been done, now God will continue to work and grow that. And it's to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What is the reason for Paul's prayer? Even what is the reason for this doxology? It's, is it just so that we can have a good time or that we can know something that we didn't know before? Is this all about us gaining a head knowledge? Is it just something that we experience one time and that's it? And it says, yeah, I had an experience one time. Yeah, I felt something and that was cool. No. It's not at all that. It's that God's glory might be seen in the church and in Christ Jesus and that it may be seen throughout generations forever and ever. The whole purpose for this is that God be glorified in the life of the believers and in the life of the church. As the believer experiences the power of the Spirit, the indwelling of Christ is mastered by love and is filled with all the fullness of God, he can then respond in glory and in glorifying God in thought and word and deed. Friends, this is the purpose for all of this. That God and Christ might be glorified. This is what we are called to. This is the whole reason for this. The whole reason that Paul is praying for the Ephesians. Why we should be praying for our church. Why this should be a prayer of our own hearts. Our own desire. That we might be empowered with the Spirit. That we might have Christ indwelling in our hearts. That we might be mastered by love. We might experience the fullness of God. Why is all of this? Because it brings glory to God. Because God is glorified when His people are empowered by the Spirit. God is glorified when Christ is dwelling in the midst of His people, dwelling in their hearts. God is glorified when we love rightly. When we are mastered by love and when that love goes out, God is glorified when His fullness is being experienced in the heart, in the inner man, when we get to experience the fullness of God. So the question that we're left with is how? How do we do this? We see the prayer, but as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a twofold, right? He says, God, help them, but they need to see, they need to respond rightly. So how do we do that? 
There's a few things that we go back to time and time and time again. Don't you love it? There's no mysterious kind of thing here. There's not some crazy equation that we have to do to understand how we get there. There's the basics. We go back to the basics of the faith. The gospel. Without it, none of this is possible. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not experience any of this. None of this will matter. None of this will happen for you. You must be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must have the starting foundation to be rooted and grounded in love. You have to have experienced the love of Christ. To experience the love of Christ means that you have repented and believed in Him. You must have the gospel as the foundation. What we read earlier, right, on the back of our our handouts here, all of this stuff, but because of His love, God sent His Son, Jesus, to live for His people's sake, the perfect obedient life God requires, and to die on the cross in our place for our sin. And through it, He offers us forgiveness, righteousness, resurrection, and eternal blessedness in God's presence. But for who? To everyone who repents of sin and trusts solely in Him for salvation. We get back to the gospel, the basics. Secondly, Regular feasting upon God's word, both in personal study and preaching of, in the preaching of the church. First, we have the gospel. Second, we need to be in God's word. How do we grow in the knowledge of Christ? How do we grow in experiencing the love of Christ? How do we grow in the fullness? How does the power of the Spirit indwell upon us that we might be able to root out sin and get rid of sin and be able to go forth in the great commission to preach God's word? We must know His Word. We must be in His Word. We must be sitting under preaching. Third, prayer. As Paul prayed, and so should we. He asked for these things. We can pray these things too. We can seek the Lord and say, Lord, give us these things, please. Fourth, fellowship. We talked all about love here. And it's all about love is our response not only to Christ, but to one another. How do we love well? We we practice love. We fellowship. We must exercise this gift of love. We must grow together, pray for one another, confess to one another, seek God together, be with one another. And fifth, and worship. As we worship God, our hearts are transformed As we worship Him, we get penetrated by the truths found in some of these hymns like our psalm that we read today, or we sang today. That worship time, going before God in prayer, in private worship, singing His praises, helps us to see the love that He has for us, helps us to cling to Him all the more, to be empowered, to go forth. And so, brothers and sisters, let us close today in prayer by echoing the words of Paul. Join me in prayer.